Good morning. Um, so Deuteronomy. Um, not necessarily the book that I would have thought, yes, let me, uh, let me say something to that. Um, but God has a mysterious way of opening your heart and realizing that's exactly what you do have to say. Um, I'm going to do my best that this is actually a confession and not a sermon. I apologize already. But this one really hit me. <clears throat> so... Um, my mother died of alcoholism when I was 15. And it was a moment um, that I have lived with until, <laughs> until my ripe old age of 60 right now. The lesson that I was taught was, if you don't follow the rules, you die. Because the doctors had told her what she should do, and she didn't do it. As a matter of fact, she put a lot of effort into not doing it. And in the process, I experienced all of that dysfunction that comes along with that. Rules and statutes, ordinances, Deuteronomy gives us a lot of those, tells us how we're supposed to act, and I'm in a constant state of fear and failure. I live most of my life in fear that I will disappoint, that I will not meet up to the standard, that I will do something wrong. I had a career that I had to leave because that was the constant state that was driving me to an edge of fragility that I had never before experienced. We've We've all experienced statutes, right? It allowed us to own people as chattel, exclude people because of their race, incarcerate people in a camp during World War II because of their race, and it was all based in fear. But there were our statutes and our ordinances. <laughs> I experienced the statutes and ordinances every time I drive to work because I regularly follow the speed limit. <laughs> I regularly um, witness other people kind of observe rules as long as it's convenient. And yet, my friends, and, and I would regularly say, I'm a rule follower. But sometimes, no, daily, I don't follow them. I don't lead with love. I judge people on their vaccination status. I judge them on their political identity. I judge them on whether they believe science. I want to pretend I know, and I don't. And I fail every day. And I'm sorry for that. But I wake up, and I try to do it again, and do good in the world, and observe as many of those ordinances as that I can, and hope that they're God-given and not man-created, because the one that men create regularly 
are abysmal in their design for exclusion and hate. So if you'd pray with me. God, thank you for this moment. Thank you for allowing us a peek into our own mortality and fragility. But let us remember that we should lead with love, judge with our heart, and understand that truly the only person that the only way that people will ultimately be judged and forgiven is through Jesus Christ. In your name I pray, Amen. Do I go right into this now? Oh good. Uh, first lesson, Deuteronomy four point one through two, and then six through nine. So now, Israel, give heed to the statutes and ordinances that I am teaching you to observe, so that you may live to enter and occupy the land that Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. You must neither add anything to what I command, what I command you, nor take away anything from it, but keep the commandments of the Lord your God with which I am charging you. You must observe them diligently. For this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, quote, Surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people. End quote. For what other great nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is whenever we call to him? And what other great nation has statutes and ordinances? as just as this entire law that I am setting before you today. But take care and watch yourselves closely, so as neither to forget the things that your eyes have seen, nor to let them slip from your mind all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Praise be to God. From the Gospel according to Mark, the seventh chapter. When the Pharisees and some of the scribes had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions they observe, the washing of cups and pots and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your d disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts and doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me all and understand. There is nothing outside the person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out, that is what defiles. For it is from within the human heart that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, 
folly. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. The Gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. In preparation to hear the word, pray for your own heart that you will attend to that which the Spirit is trying to say to you. Because of far greater importance than the words of a sermon preached from a pulpit is the word revealed to you in your heart by the Spirit while the pastor happens to be talking. Amen. While I was at the University of Chicago, I discovered that if you were enrolled in one department or program, you were perfectly welcome to take courses from anywhere else in the university. And the great thing was is that the tuition you paid for those courses was based on the program that you were in, not from the department from which you were taking the courses. Uh, provided you could meet the prerequisite courses for the, for the particular class that you're applying to. I never did get to take the principles of eye surgery class that I saw at the medical school or, or any of the classes that included the use of a cadaver, but that's another story. I was in the Divinity School, housed in Swift Hall, and we had comparatively less expensive tuition than other programs, and we also had pretty good financial aid. And so I could walk across Harper Quadrangle and register for a class in Rosenwald Hall, which at the time was the significantly more expensive business school, and it was no added cost to me. And so, learning this while working on my master's degrees at the university, I matriculated in a few classes in the business school, classes like not-for-profit management and not-for-profit accounting. When I was taking the management course, my professor's opening lecture for not-for-profit uh, management said that there was very little different in the activities of management in a for-profit and a not-for-profit corporation. Motivation, measurement, organization, management was pretty much identical because organizations deal with human behavior and whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit, you're still dealing with people. The major difference that he spoke to was a difference of the entity's output. First question, very simple. A for-profit corporation is for... I don't always want to see the same hands. That's right. A for-profit corporation is for profit. It's an easy one. But a not-for-profit corporation, like First Presbyterian Church of LaGrange, or Beds Plus, or Pillars, or Interfaith Community Partners, that corporation exists for... Well, we know it's not for profit, so it is for... Both deal with the same dynamics of markets and personnel organization and structure and management, but the outputs should be significantly different. Organizations have inputs and throughputs and outputs. For-profit organizations have the inputs of raw material or information, and then they have the throughputs of their industrial equipment and labor and analysis and their outputs of widgets or pins or whatever they have then leverages the marketplace to generate capital or added value in return above the costs of the inputs. Their inputs, their throughputs, their outputs, 
Hopefully the added value means they can bring value to the investors of the corporation by selling for more than it costs to produce. A not-for-profit corporation is different because the output of a for-profit is profit, but the not-for-profit is a better human being. That's what my professor said. A for-profit corporation generates profits. A not-for-profit generates better human beings. Which raises in my mind the question if it is possible to hybrid a for-profit motivation in a not-for-profit outcome when the two models of production are dramatically different in terms of their expectations. Particularly with goods and services that are profitable precisely because they require scarcity for the market to work. You can't have price unless you have scarcity. Is it possible that there are certain goods and services that defy scarcity and thereby should be exempt from market forces? Driven by a for-profit model or goods and services like physical health, literacy, access to clean water, should they be sheltered from market forces in order to preserve, preserve outcomes? Not maximizing the turn on investment in capital, but maximizing the investment in the return of better human beings. Well, I know that question is better discussed far away from the pulpit, so I will go no further than that. You're welcome to pay for the beer. All of this introduction about inputs and throughputs and outputs and markets has an application with today's gospel reading, believe it or not. In the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Mark, begins with Pharisees complaining that Jesus' disciples were unmanageable. They were eating with what the Pharisees believed to be defiled hands. Now, please understand this was long before the germ theory of disease that they weren't trying to actually cleanse something because of bacterial infection. They were trying to clean off the dirt of the world because they considered everything else to be unclean. So you'd go into the marketplace and you had to get that schmutz that the Gentiles had touched off of everything that you were going to touch because you knew the Gentiles were dirty, filthy human beings and you did not want to associate with them. And so when the Pharisees and Sadducees are saying to Jesus, why are your disciples e eating without first cleansing themselves, Jesus lets them know it's because they don't think that the other people that they've come in contact with are dirty. The output, the Pharisees argued, was a righteous human being. And it was defined by the inputs and throughputs of their human systems. They spent a great deal of time focusing on all of the inputs, the things that you take in. There were lists of things that were okay to touch, things that were okay to taste, okay to eat, and then there was an even longer list of things that weren't okay. For example, Deuteronomy 14.21, at the end of the verse it says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, that's kind of an act of empathy, right? You're going to have a little boiled goat. Don't use its own mother. Empathically use the milk from another goat. Except once that sentence got analyzed by the managers of the For Righteousness Corporation, they brought in all kinds of questions. That's what consultants do, by the way. How do you know if the milk that you were using is the milk of that particular goat's mother? 
What if you accidentally eat a piece of cheese along with your goat meat only to find out that that cheese came from the mother of the hamburger that you're eating? How do you know whether or not there is a molecule of cheese left on the plate from the goat's mother and then you use that same plate the next day to make your goat stew? You've now contaminated the two of them. As a consequence, to this day, ultra-Orthodox Jewish households have two sets of dishes. You have milk dishes and you have meat dishes. On the off chance that you might violate the single phrase in a single verse from Deuteronomy 14, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. We have to make sure that we are surrounded always by perfectible righteousness. Jesus comes back to the Pharisees and explains that their management metrics are misfocused. You are obsessed with what is going into your body and how it is processed, but you're paying virtually no attention to what's coming out. Now there is a little joke in here that what is defiled is the consequences of digestion and that joke is not lost in what Jesus is saying it's what you digest that comes out of you that's truly unclean not what goes in but it's deeper than just a little play on the words associated to digestion righteousness Jesus said is not measured by what goes in righteousness is measured by what comes out defiled unclean polluted behavior isn't based on the input it's based on what your heart does with that input before it turns into an output we read in Deuteronomy how the people were not to add to the law because it would take their focus off of God's intent God's intent was to guide the management of their hearts to create the outcome of better human beings a better society a better community if you're seeking a righteous outcome, quit obsessing over the details of what goes into you and start thinking about what is coming out of you and what your heart, your soul, and your character did to those ingredients and those groceries. And grasping at Jesus' management lesson here takes us in so many possible directions. Like the Pharisees, we can become obsessed with the purity of what comes in rather than the quality of what's going out. First Presbyterian Church of LaGrange is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization for religious purposes. And the question is, do we focus on what kind of people leave this place? Or do we obsess over what kind of people come in this place? Where is our significant concern? Because our focus, if it is on receiving good, qualified, decent human beings to start with, then what in the heck are we for? If the outcome is better human beings, then we should probably not worry about the quality of the human beings that come in in the first place. I'd suggest that the work of the Church of Jesus Christ isn't unlike the amazing process of composting. There's a comparison for you. Our church is to be a compost heap. To take the leavings, the leftovers, the discarded, otherwise worthless, organic detritus of the world around us, and by mixing 
and waiting and churning, transform it into rich, fertile soil. Now, I know thinking of the church as a compost heap is kind of silly. I get that. Except, I cannot help but remember one profound case study in my management class. A case study that sticks with me to this day and is the case study of Mary Nelson and Bethel Lutheran Church. It was 1965. Mary Nelson was preparing to be a Lutheran missionary to Guatemala. And before she headed off to language school in order to master both Spanish and the tribal languages of the area of Guatemala she was to serve, she spent a few weeks with her brother David. David Nelson had just become pastor of Bethel Lutheran Church in West Garfield. When he arrived at his new manse, the church was surrounded by the National Guard because of the rioting that had begun in 1965. It was the first community in Chicago during the 60s riots that called the National Guard to try and quell the violence and unrest in the community. David was the new, very white, very Lutheran pastor of this church, and he was wondering what he was supposed to do in the context, trying to figure out how to minister effectively in great turmoil. After a few days at the manse, his sister, Mary, picked up the phone and called the Lutheran Board of Global Missions and resigned her post to head to Guatemala. She told David, what's the point of learning a whole nother language when there is ministry to do right here, right now? And then she began to pray, and this fact was included in the business school case study. She began to pray, and she began to look around her community thinking that God has given something to this community that has value. The problem is we just don't see it. And as she walked, and as she prayed, She asked herself, what does West Garfield Park have in abundance? And the answer came to her through her own eyes. It was full of garbage and full of unemployed, healthy men. Now, someone else looking at that would probably see a problem. Mary Nelson saw an opportunity, and she started by opening a recycling plant. She found a vacant piece of property and did a great deal of research to find out who happened to own that piece of property. And after great search of deeds and titles, she found out that it was the sole possession of a good Lutheran suburbanite. And so when she contacted him and said, we have an opportunity for Lutheran mission, can we just borrow the lot and you can take a write-off for its rental value? He concurred. It was 1966 when that recycling lot opened, long before recycling was cool. From that first program, Bethel New Life Ministries, now Bethel New Life Inc., you can Google it, they're still very much alive. They went on to create a social service center, school, senior care. They've now built a senior building job training, literacy programs, a micro-lending credit union, a vibrant West Side ministry that is still providing services to this day. That, my friends, is not-for-profit management. Mary took garbage in, and with the right heart, the right throughput, her output was better human beings. 
There is nothing outside a person that is going in that will defile, said Jesus. Think about that. Think about that the next time you look around and presume that something is merely garbage or unclean or unsafe to touch. And put that through the management of a loving heart. And what comes out? It's righteous. Truly, truly righteous. Amen? Amen.